The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the program. Great to have you along with us tonight. Looking forward to tonight's show. As you know, I play uh, video games and other games, in fact. I like board games. I like card games. Video games are kind of the path of least resistance right now. And we're going to be talking about gaming culture. It's become huge in a lot of ways. What are its roots? What are some of the games that are influencing all of this? Why? And how is it affecting us as a society? John Gastel will be our guest. He's a returning guest. And we'll be talking about his book. It's called Dungeon Party. And it addresses these particular themes Plus, um, you know, he's done a lot of research on the topic for the book, so we'll be talking about that tonight. Maybe you'll see a bit of yourself in this discussion. Uh, something that's kind of cool, I don't know how many people care or saw the, uh, I guess, the cutting down of and then the transportation of the giant 75-foot, I think it was a Norwegian spruce tree to go to Rockefeller Center in Manhattan, in New York City to be the uh, official Christmas tree in New York City. You know how they have, they do this every year. It's a big deal. And uh, there was just, they showed some of it on the news the other night. I don't know, maybe a week ago now. I'm not even sure how long ago. It wasn't that long ago. But the tree came from my hometown of Oneonta, New York, which is about 30 miles from where I live now in Cooperstown, New York. Uh, I When I saw the video of it, of course, I, I have friends that live right there. It wasn't taken from their house. In front of their house, it was taken from a neighbor's house, but you know I know the area well, so I had a I had a particular interest in. It. I usually don't care, but because the tree was from my hometown, I did care, and I I paid attention to it. Well, a story just came out that when they got the tree to Rockefeller Center and they started to unwrap it because they wrap it for the trip, they found a little owl in the tree. It'd been in there, probably scared to death. This little owl, it looks like a baby owl if you if you see pictures of it, but it's not. It's a full uh, adult owl just happens to be a variety that doesn't get very big and it was in this tree hadn't eaten for three days obviously because and i don't know what kind of wrapping they do if it, it, it the owl just couldn't get out or if it was just too scared to, to try to get out i don't know but the owl is doing fine and they've uh, the owl has been um is being cared for by some experts and they've named the owl i think rockefeller which is kind of cool because the tree is displayed in rockefeller center so I, I I thought that was a pretty interesting story. The, the the owl from Oneonta, New York, the tree from Oneonta, New York, my hometown, kind of a cool thing. And the owl is darn cute, by the way, when you see the pictures. Anyway, uh, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel and the Twitch channel. I know that a lot of people have uh, subscribed to the Twitch channel but uh, using their Amazon Prime account, and you need to renew that every month. Just go in and do it the same way you did it before. Again, there's no charge if you use your Amazon Prime account to subscribe and you connect the two it's actually uh it's there's no charge whatsoever for doing that and it gets you um you know the benefits and the advantages of being a subscriber on our twitch channel we encourage that as we found out over the weekend we had a little bit of difficulty on youtube so we had to rely on the twitch channel exclusively during our movie screening night on saturday night which was fun by the way what was the name of that movie I'm trying to remember which one we watched can you believe I don't remember? I, it'll come to me in a minute. 
it was fun regardless. So, okay, we're going to go to break. We'll get our guest on the line. We'll begin, uh, begin talking about gaming culture tonight. It's beyond reality. We're looking forward to this conversation with John Gastel. It'll be a good one. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for joining us tonight. Remember, again, to subscribe to us on YouTube and Twitch. Both channels can be found easily just by searching my name, J.V. Johnson. Give them, give them both a subscribe. Also, follow us on Facebook at Beyond Reality Radio. It's a great way to keep track of what we've got going on in the program. And we're excited tonight because we've got returning guest John Gastel joining us. John has uh, written a novel called Dungeon Party. And, John, if I remember correctly, you were here last. We were talking about another novel of yours, Gray Matters. And I think at that point you said around Halloween time you're going to be releasing this Dungeon Party book. And I, at the time, said, we've got to get you on because this is right up my alley. Absolutely. And uh, John Hunt Publishing was very excited about Dungeon Party, but they wanted to rush Grey Matters out a little faster because it was sort of political, political science fiction. They wanted to get out during the election, but... They couldn't resist the temptation of releasing a dungeon party, uh, <laughs> basically right around Halloween. Well, it makes a lot of sense. I, but i got to ask you, too, before we get into talking about dungeon party and gaming culture, uh, you are also a, a political scientist. That's one of uh, your areas of expertise. We just went through uh, what has to be uh, one of the most curious presidential election seasons. Are you happy that it's over, or are you one of the folks like sometimes I am, kind of thrives on the thrill of a presidential election season? Well, I can't help noticing your verb tense. I, I'm glad that the election is over for you. Um, <laughs> I wish I was in that uh, space. If there's a portal to that parallel dimension, I would happily walk through it. Um, it, it is unprecedented to have exactly the situation we're in. But, you know, it, back in 2000, there was something a little different. Uh, in that case, a true nail-biter of an election in Florida left the uh, presidential yeah. election result up in doubt. What we're seeing right now is something very different and, uh, frankly, uh, a little bit disturbing. Uh, we, you know, we worry about the strength of democratic norms, and, and uh, we'll get through this because, um, you know, it's, it's an old, robust political system, uh, and it's held up all this time. Uh, it's always changing, um, but, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm glad the election feels over to you. Uh, that is normally where I would be, too. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask you this at the at the risk of of treading, in, treading into territory that we don't want to get to. But as long as we keep it as apolitical as possible, uh, we'll be we'll be OK. But what are your thoughts on the whole idea of, of voting not being limited to one day anymore, but actually weeks and weeks of voting? Is that some and, and then add the, the by mail part of it? What are your thoughts on all that? Well, that's been around for quite a while. Um, I think a lot of people just didn't notice it. Uh, back in the day, I used to run campaigns, and for reasons you'd never believe, uh, my dad, well, beyond reality, uh, my dad ran uh, for Congress when I was a little kid, and I, all I understood was that he was going to leave, mm-hmm. go to D.C. I lived in San Diego, so I actually didn't really help his campaign. Um, <laughs> and when my mom ran years later, I mean, how random is that, right? Um, they both lost, but when my mom ran, I was in graduate school, and I said, you know what, I'm going to come out and help her. 
And so I worked really hard on the campaign, and I started just learning about campaigns and elections and all that. Um, so I started to appreciate that, yeah, there's lots of states that have early voting. Uh, mail-in voting was pretty standard already at that point in California. Um, and, you know, you can show up at the, the county office and so on. I had to do that once when I realized I was going to be out of town at the last minute and right. just ran and got a ballot. So it's been working fine. Uh, there are some states now that are all vote-by-mail. It's uh, really not a big deal. The challenge this year, uh, JV, was that uh, because of COVID, some states like Pennsylvania had to all of a sudden ramp up yeah. a you know, a big vote-by-mail program. So they wound up with a mountain of ballots. Now, you saw some legislatures like, and uh, it was Republicans in Florida who said, you know what, we're going to give the uh, election officials a chance to start counting ballots early. Right. That's what you have to do when, right. you have, when you're trying to climb Ballot Mountain. Um, but the legislature in my state, Pennsylvania, did not do that. And so that's how you wound up with cities like Philadelphia having to start counting the ballots once the election ends. And it just took a while. You can't just suddenly, you know, quadruple the right. staff and space for these kinds of things. As you saw, they're already under scrutiny. So it's, you know, it, it can be done pretty efficiently. Uh, it just takes a little bit of forethought and a lot of cooperation. Um, but, you know, we're, we're getting through it. So how was that? That was good. I, I actually remember vividly the 2000 election, too. And I remember, and I, actually, I say I remember. I think I remember going to bed thinking that uh, we had one winner and waking up hearing that we had another winner and then it changed again or something like that. It was just like this, you know, back and forth thing. It was, it was, that was quite uh, a process, but I find it, you know, these are the things that you look back on in history and they, they are kind of milestones in, in at least political history where we learn some things, we experience some things, we learn a little bit about ourselves and they're probably, you know, as painful as they are at the time, kind of, healthy to go through because we come out the other side hopefully better for it. Well, I, I, I agree with that sentiment. And uh, this isn't, uh, you know, I'm getting a little close to a spoiler for the novel Gray Matters we talked about last time, but it does involve a foreign entity meddling in a U.S. election. <laughs> um, and I, I wrote that years before the 2016 election. So when that came around, I thought, Oh, geez. I mean, this was supposed to be a work of near future sci-fi, not, you know, a, a playbook. Um, and uh, to our credit, I, I think there was a recognition that, wow, okay, we really hadn't thought through how a foreign actor could potentially influence an election. And again, not by hacking into the right, voting machines, right. but simply by using the available social media and right. so on. Um, well, in 2020, uh, the U.S., I have to say, had a, had a much more robust response. And people working in, you know, the Trump administration actually uh, kept, uh, kept Russia and some other actors pretty well out of the election. And the, there's no evidence that they certainly were able to tamper with the vote directly. And so that's to some credit. I, you know, it is a case of where that kind of strategy sometimes only works once. Um, after that, uh, you know, you should be forewarned. And it looks like we held up pretty well. So... Um, yeah, I, I think we, we did learn from that, and I think we're going to learn. That makes me optimistic about what happens after 2020, because I do think election officials across the country are going to be talking to each other and saying, hey, we, we need to have a more robust uh, approach to voting that we can handle something like a pandemic, or, or frankly, maybe we want to make voting simpler, regardless of whether or not there's a virus. So I, I think we will learn from this and come out of it uh, in better shape. You know, you're leading me, you've got me on a lead line, and you're walking me into this this path that I didn't expect to go down tonight, but I'm just fascinated by your perspective on some of these things. And um, 
does any of what you just talked about for the 2016 election with Russia uh, meddling through, uh, you know, influencing social media, paying for social media posts, does any of that concern you in the sense that we have consolidated so much of our media and so much of our influence into these social media companies, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, or even Google slash YouTube? Um, it's so concentrated that it allows for that type of abuse, as opposed to let's you know let's go back thirty years where you had every every major city had three or four newspapers had you know the major had, had the television networks plus there were a bunch of independent television stations in order to get the same kind of effect the Russians would have had to buy ads in all of those vehicles to have any kind of impact. Well, I, I'll give both a very indirect response and a direct one. First, the indirect one is. Let's be clear about something. The United States, as a matter of policy, has meddled in elections all oh, over the course, world for of course, decades, yes, right? Yes. For centuries, more likely. That's right. Um, and so let's all be clear here. This is something nations do, right? Everybody has an espionage crew. Frankly, everybody has an industrial espionage crew. And certainly meddling in uh, political affairs is something that all nations do. Now, that doesn't mean you can't protect yourself against it. And I think you're right that we are recognizing a vulnerability in how the Internet has evolved. A colleague of mine, Todd Davies at Stanford, has reminded me more than once, hey, John, the Internet didn't look anything like this just 20 years ago. It was this sort of adorable space yeah. where, you know, things like Wikipedia and, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, open, you know, blogs and, and such were just popping up everywhere. A show like, you know, Beyond Reality would come on and people would say, oh, look, there's one more thing. I wonder what that's about. Right. It's only in the last, uh, you know, little stretch of time that we created this, well, the economy uh, uh, basically created a... a, a group of three, four, five companies that are just so dominant in this space, and that then they just inhaled so much other media. Yeah. So, so that's new. And, you know, we live in a democratic society where we get to make choices about how we want to live, including how we want to structure our media. You know, there's more to it than just breaking things up. That could very well happen, as we did with the phone company years ago. Um, but there's a lot of different ways we can respond to the situation. But the point is we don't have to accept it. We can say, you know what, we, we have a different vision. And, and that's actually where my, my next book, and now that I've, I've written a couple novels, I, back to the grindstone on the nonfiction, I'm actually writing about an idea I call the democracy machine, which is trying to re-envision the Internet to support democracy uh, and creating uh, a really non-commercial platforms for all kinds of interaction among citizens and with their governments. Um, that isn't subject to the same problems as when everything is fed through the Facebook. So as we've, you know, opened up this Pandora's box <laughs> a little bit here, the next obvious question is, why'd you decide to write Dungeon Party? Ah, well, as, <laughs> as the governor of New Mexico uh, once said, uh, you've opened up a whole box of Pandora's. <laughs> um, that's a true, true quote. Um, he was a character. Um, so, yeah, why is a guy who studies uh, elections uh, writing about um fantasy role-playing games. Well, the reason is, I'm actually not just a guy who studies elections. I do study uh, elections, but what I really study at Penn State is group behavior. I'm fascinated by how people treat each other, talk to each other, make decisions when they're acting in groups. Now, my very first book was Democracy in Small Groups years ago, and uh, the response to that from a lot of people was, hey, those are just small groups. What about society? What about, you know, whole electoral systems? And so I wound up creating this weird little niche where I study small groups, but I'm especially interested 
in small groups in the political world, but I never lost my passion for just plain old small social groups because they are, they are so special, JV. That, that is the only place where you can really kind of touch and feel society. Society is an abstraction, right? It, it's this thing we talk about. We talk about American culture, American society. You're never going to see that or touch that or know that. But when you're in a group of even just three people, four, five, now there's a little society. A colleague in sociology calls them tiny publics. And they have you know, conflicts. Uh, things get negotiated. They vote. Uh, norms are established or challenged, right? Uh, maybe you say something to a friend and it offends them. Are they going to say something or not? That's the moment when society is going to turn one way or the other. Just one little moment at a time, but you can see it happen. So gaming groups are a particularly potent social group. And what's fascinating, there's a grad student here at Penn State who's, who's studying this with me. What happens is kind of on two levels. On the one hand, it is, again, a tiny public, and you're interacting with people sitting around a table or <laughs> during COVID. We're sitting around at our computers talking to each other through Zoom. That, that's a social interaction. But then we're also playing out a fantasy in whatever mythical world it is. If it's D&D, it, it might be um, sort of a Tolkien-esque world. But our characters' interactions are also a social drama. And again, we're negotiating the rules of our society. Even things like gender identity, right? Those are, those are up for, for discussion. That can happen live at the table among the players, or one of us might try a character who in the fantasy world is neither male nor female. Um, why not? You know, there's a, so the point is, again, that I'm drawn to these small groups because that's, I think, a fascinating place to watch how society takes shape and changes, and gaming groups are just a fascinating type of group. Okay, so in full disclosure, I have played Dungeons and Dragons. I've played Ooh. I've played a lot of these tabletop role playing games. I've played other types of complex tabletop games. Right now, I play a lot of video games just because it's easier, particularly when you're you know you you don't have friends around to play. So uh, it it makes a bit of a connection that way electronically. You, you find people to play with. Um, so I am very very familiar with what we're talking about here, but I'm not sure everybody is. When we start talking about these games, particularly Dungeons and Dragons, which kind of is maybe the most well-known of all of them. Um, for people who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, other than maybe the title Dungeons and Dragons, what are we talking about? Sure, that, that's a great question. And I'll give you a visual that is pre-pandemic, from the before time. So uh, the archetype of Dungeons and Dragons, people may have seen it in, in a show like Stranger Things or Community. Um, it's uh, a group of people typically sitting around a table. Uh, let's say there's one person at the head of the table and then a couple people on either side, like in Dungeon Party. So the person at the head of the table in Dungeons & Dragons uh, is the Dungeon Master. Uh, you can, we'll just call it the Game Director because it could be any game. Um, and that person has come to the table with a lot of story in mind. They may have a pre-printed uh, booklet that describes, say, the, the cemetery that they're going to explore. Um, they have books about the different things you might encounter. There's pages of details about how a zombie behaves and you know, what it would take to take one down and so on. And the four people sitting at the table each have a character. Think of it like an avatar, you know, almost like in the movie Avatar. Um, a character that they play. Maybe one is a, a, a barbarian, one is a wizard, and so on. 
Um, so those four people are adventurers, typically moving around in a group together and off on a quest. And they go into the cemetery, which may be laid out on the table uh, with little miniatures representing their four characters and um, a little oilcloth map that has a, a graveyard marked out on it. And they, the dungeon master asks them what they want to do. And they say, well, we're going to walk over to the biggest mausoleum we see and see if we can open it up. And they go to it, and now, now here's where Dungeons & Dragons can be very different things depending on the game they want to play. If you want to play the kind of game that prepares you for a future as an accountant, um, well, then there's going to be a lot of die rolling, a lot of tables being consulted, and modifiers on your die rolls. Well, how strong is your barbarian? Is, is she wearing her special mailed gloves that make her stronger and better able to open doors? Because this crypt is pretty stuck, you know. Or you can be playing in a, in a Dungeons & Dragons campaign that is more about the cooperative storytelling. In that case, there may be some die rolls, sure, but it's more about uh, creativity and uh, expression. So the barbarian says, you know, does this uh, mausoleum door seem to have a crack anywhere? And the dungeon master doesn't really know and says, yes, there's a hairline crack at the bottom of the door. And she says, well, then, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my spear and I'm going to jam it in there and I'm going to pry it up like a lever. And um, the dungeon master is impressed and says, well, you know, that works, and the door comes open. No dice were rolled and so on. So it just goes from there, right? Uh, what's going to happen is up to the dungeon master, and how they respond is up to the players, and the story unfolds. That's the basic nuts and bolts of a tabletop role-playing game. So a game like Dungeons & Dragons, I played Dungeons & Dragons in the um, early to mid-1980s, probably right, right through the 1980s. Um, how long did it exist before me and, and people of that you know, age group found it, and what's the genesis of it? Well, the genesis is, um, I, I don't know how much of this is apocryphal, but as far as I know, this is true, that it, it really did start with war uh, simulation miniatures, so you might, yes. you know, have a French Revolution and so on, and then one of the famous names in D and D. And I apologize, I'm blinking at the moment whether it was Gary Gygax or one of his colleagues, um, maybe Dave Arneson or, or someone else. Um, basically said, um, and then a dragon appears, <laughs> and <laughs> everyone at the table said, "Oh my gosh, this just got so much more interesting." Um, and it just went from there. That's again, it may be mythical, and I apologize if I have a name wrong. But um, it just took off from there. And then uh, once they started creating uh, books and so on, um, one of the fascinating little details is uh, this guy Ed Greenwood had created a whole world. You know, in, in fiction, especially in sci-fi, you talk about world building, how people imagine whole worlds like the Star Wars universe, right? There's a whole world that's been built. Well, Ed Greenwood had created this thing called the Forgotten Realms, and D&D basically said, we'd like to buy you and everything you've written. Mm -hmm. um, and so now all of a sudden you had all this raw source material, um, and the game just kept building out from there. And as the game evolved, rule additions changed. The rules sometimes got cleaned up. By some accounts, they got worse before they got better. Um, and the game just kept growing. And a big surprise to me when I wrote Dungeon Party, I had no idea that Dungeons & Dragons was uh, actually reaching its peak. And, and now, I mean, this is a time when there are more people playing it than at any point in history. Really? Back in the 80s when you were playing, it was a big deal, and it, it felt like it kind of went away. But maybe thanks partly to Wizards of the Coast, the company that's uh, taken the reins on it, boy, it's really exploded. And role-playing games in general are doing very well. Uh, what, what, 
role-playing games obviously can also take a computer or a, uh, a console game version, a video game version, but when we stick to talking about the tabletop games, um, are they more popular now, John, do you think, because the Internet allows us to connect, connect with players that we might not have in our local communities? I mean, sometimes it's hard to find people who are willing to play a game like Dungeons & Dragons, or in my case, I used to play a lot of military simulation games, so these Avalon Hill games. I don't know if you're familiar with Avalon Hill. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I played. I pl- I loved those games. Played them all the time, but I had to play them solitaire because I could never find people who would play those games with me. So, has the internet allowed people to connect with other players? Is that part of it? Yeah, I think all of these things are moving in tandem. I I, I suspect, though, you know, it's sometimes hard to get a hold of the the actual marketing data from companies uh, like Wizards of the Coast and so on. But you occasionally see an article where someone does have access to that, and it seems as though the ascent of the tabletop role-playing games is actually moving in tandem with the rise of board games more generally. They, they are having a real renaissance, and that's related to the Internet in complex ways such as Kickstarter, which has allowed, you know, if JV comes up with some harebrained idea for a game, he can find enough people who care about it, and all of a sudden, you know, you have Sasquatch Football League. Um, and, and, you know, producing the game and distributing it is now easier than ever. And if it's a hit, you know, like uh, these Cards Against Humanity or Exploding Kittens and so on, these games can take off from nowhere. And what that's created is this incredible diversity of games that you could play um, on your tabletop. And now during COVID, the online versions of those very same games have really taken off. Now, that's all happened in parallel with, not in opposition to, the rise of video games. Um, because it's around the same time, roughly, that the video game industry passed the movie industry in terms of the market size. So I think games in general have just a tremendous popular appeal. And again, people love playing these games in groups, whether they're getting together you know, to play a, a sci-fi game like Destiny on their console, or they're playing a tabletop role-playing game, or they're playing some game that might just last a couple hours, maybe through an interface like Steam or, or Zoom or what have you. Um, it's, just, it's a great way to socialize with other people. And in the case of a fantasy role-playing game where you might play this thing for years, potentially with the same people, it can also be a, a powerful way to kind of grow as a person and develop social skills um, and, in general, just start to understand, you know, what the arc of a life is like and the choices you make in your life and how those have downstream effects. Uh, you can really learn that through this, if you will, it's kind of a grand simulation in just a, a kind of a more interesting world, but it's still the same kinds of human choices and dilemmas you're going to face in your real life. Before I started playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, and you've got to be somewhat mature enough to understand those games, I think, to be to to play them effectively. Um, but before that, I I played you know the Monopolies, the Saris, uh, Parcheesi, uh, games like uh, Masterpiece. I don't know if anyone even knows what that game is anymore. I do. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. There's another a clue. You know these games that I played with my family, my sister, my parents, and we wore them. Out the boards would be, you know, the game boards would be have 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 marks on them from just or you know so much use. Um, and then when I had kids, you know, I bought all the same games for them, and they barely cracked them open. Um, part of that is my fault because I was far busier than maybe my parents were at the time, um, so I didn't get to play as much with them. But 
has has there been somewhat of a disinterest that has now reemerged as an interest in these games, or is it is it just the digital age has has taken too much of our attention that we don't haven't been able to spend as much time with the games that we grew up playing? Well. There's a bunch of questions on the table, as, as has been the case since we got started. <laughs> um, and in this case, there's a few things going on. One is that the time budgets is, is what uh, sometimes they're called by social scientists of, of parents are, are much more uh, complicated now yeah. than they were when you and I were, were kids. That, there's no question about that. Um, but the good news is that, uh, the, again, the proliferation of the variety of games really has made it possible uh, for families to get together and play games um, in, in interesting ways. There, there really are parents who do play video games with their kids, um, but the tabletop games have been so popular that there's even a whole subgenre of cooperative games, like, ironically, uh, one of the best of these is called Pandemic, which is about a series of global pandemics. And the cooperative games, I think, create a great dynamic compared to Monopoly, which is infamous for not only being competitive, but for just <laughs> knocking people out of the game, which yeah. is like a, a violation of game design 101. <laughs> um, so these cooperative games, you know, where you have a shared goal, and there's a, a Lord of the Rings version of these, too, um, you know, it really lets the family work together, and, and it lets you work with people who have very different skill sets. So if there's a, a young kid who's maybe, you know, full of energy and creativity, but isn't maybe as gifted at sort of strategy, well, you know, there's, there's a role for the kid to play in one of those cooperative games, and, uh, you know, she or he will get to make their contribution, while, you know, the mom will say, okay, and let's remember this part of the board over here where the disease is spreading really rapidly. Let's, let's address that, right? Um, and we are seeing with D&D um, people in their, you know, 30s, 40s, and 50s who have kids um, passing it on, right? And again, other role-playing games, too. It could be set in a, a Western or, or steampunk theme or, or superheroes or what have you. And they're passionate about the game, and they really know how to play it. And so they can get kids involved even before the kids are really, say, sort of high school-level sophisticated. Um, and it's, it's kind of like telling stories. So kids are into that. Even though there are video games, they still love the idea of kind of sitting around the campfire. Um, so... It works in some families, um, and it doesn't so much in others. But again, what heartens me is that there's just so many different ways to play games together, whether it's at the table, uh, through the console, or through some other medium. It's, it's really remarkable what's out there now. And by the way, I am one of those parents who plays video games with their kids, particularly my son. In fact, my son and I play almost every night. We play uh, a video game called Call of Duty. I'm sure you're familiar with it. He does a game stream. Let's talk about that for a second. When we talk about gaming culture and the popularity of gaming culture, there are channels dedicated to showing game uh, video gaming competitions. There are streaming uh, platforms like Twitch uh, that really started as gamer uh, intensive streaming platforms for people to watch other people playing whatever game it happens to be. There are, you know, tens of thousands of options. Um, but there's a whole electronic culture that's developing around other people playing games. Well, that's true. That actually does come up in Dungeon Party. There's a there's a point where they're talking about uh, essentially what's a podcast, and it's one thing to watch people playing a competitive video game through Twitch or something. But what's even more fascinating to me is the devotion of fans to listening to other people play uh, games like Dungeons and Dragons. 
And there's a whole bunch of successful podcasts. Critical Role is, is the most famous one. Um, but, uh, you know, there have been really creative shows, too, like Harmon Quest was created by Dan Harmon, the guy known perhaps best for Rick and Morty. Uh, and it's a super cute show where a really professional dungeon master would walk uh, a group uh, with sort of celebrity guests through little D&D-like scenarios, and they would animate the interaction of the characters. And it was just totally played for laughs, and it was pretty funny. Um, and again, um, you know, it's really watching other people play games or listening to other people play games for, for weeks on end, months on end, years. And so there is something vicarious about that that's, that's you know, it's, it's really watching people who are great at what they do, whether it's being funny or dramatic. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's fine. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if that only feeds into the appetite to play the games firsthand, to actually get in there and learn how to be a dungeon master or be a, a player in a campaign. Um, and now with digital technology, it, it really is easy to get connected with people. If you can't find someone in your town, I have a friend in, in uh, Melbourne who has trouble finding people to play games with. Well, he plays games with people in either the U.S., U.K., and so on, and has just a great time. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's easy to do that. Dungeon Party is almost, it feels nostalgic now. Um, there are ways in which it's tied into 2020 that I did not intend that are sort of fascinating. Once you read the book, you'll, you'll see it. But um, it really is thinking back to that time when people would sit around a table and play a game together and uh, sometimes get into hellacious arguments. <laughs> uh, in this case, it actually breaks up the gaming group at one point. Um, that's very real. It still does happen. And we will get through this pandemic and be sitting back at the tabletop with our best friends that we can argue with and then storm out of the house. Not as effective on Zoom right now, but uh, we'll get there. So, you know, you, you talk about playing with other people around the world, and obviously it's a completely new paradigm today. I remember in Dungeons and Dragons wasn't one of these games you could do this with per se, but there were a lot of games, these Avalon Hill games I would play or, and others where people would play by mail, by postal I know, I know. mail and play these games. It, it would take years, years to complete a game. Yeah, now it takes minutes. I know it's incredible. Um, and, you know, and, and people are, we don't think of it this way, but people's go-to gaming partner really is artificial intelligence yeah. uh, in one form or another, that we go play a game and the computer just assumes responsibility for everyone not under our control. And, you know, sometimes that's pretty hard scripted. Um, but other times there, there's more dynamic intelligence going on there uh, that's super satisfying. Um, so we can get a little bit of that experience of fantasy role-playing in a really well-done computer game um, that can surprise us, that can affect us emotionally. I've certainly had that experience. Um, but again, I, I think the, the jury is, is back from the deliberation room, and they're telling us, that's not hurting tabletop gaming. If anything, it's making people appreciate the role of story in a game and, and wanting to play a game that doesn't last a few minutes or a few hours, but potentially lasts for years. 
That's um, that's encouraging. That's encouraging because I miss those, and I have all my Avalon Hill games in a in a box in the attic. And I, you know, every once in a while, I think I'm going to pull these out and I'm going to try to relearn to play them because it's been so long. Um, I want to talk about this social component because that is a lot of the the focus of uh, your message in Dungeon Party. When people gather to play a game like Dungeons and Dragons, is it to remove themselves from their Maybe their life is boring. I don't know. I'm just making some assumptions and, and some statements. And I and I don't know that that I could even assess myself in this way. But are they looking for some excitement that wouldn't necessarily be in their day-to-day life and they can live a bit vicariously through a character that they create with a, a group of other people who have created characters to do the same thing? Uh, as they say in improv, yes and. Uh, so for, <laughs> first, the yes. I, absolutely. I mean... I. Uh, I remember an editor at uh, uh, Tor Forge once said uh, that, uh, you know, wh- why would anyone be surprised that during a recession their book sales go up, right? People have less disposable income but more desire to be somewhere else. Um, and the games give you that, right? They, let, they transport right. you. They take you to another world. Um, some of these games are, are kind of a power fantasy for some players where they get to be a, a mighty warrior or, uh, you know, a queen that has a dominion, right? Maybe a very advanced character actually has whole, whole countrysides, uh, you know, built in, in, in uh, providing her tribute. Um, so those things can happen in the gaming world and be very satisfying and give you something you don't get in the real world. And there are all kinds of other reasons people do it, right? Sometimes the real world is what draws them into the game. So, I may meet someone at a gaming convention who says, hey, have you tried Pathfinder? And I'm like, oh, what's that? Well, it's kind of like D&D, but it's, I think it's better. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. I'll give it a shot, and I sit down, and I play it. Well, why am I doing it? Because I'm finding this person super attractive, and I have a feeling we're both single, <laughs> right? And, and so now I'm playing a game not to escape reality, but to actually maybe get a little closer to it. Right? That happens all the time at these gaming conventions. I mean, relationships are started, marriages are started, um, and, and friendships are made. It may just be that the person has a spark. I once sat down at a gaming convention with a dude who had a, a, a little brochure with his entire rule book, and it was kind of a role-playing game uh, making fun of horror movies, and there just wasn't much to it. And it was hilarious, just so funny, so creative, um, and you know, was that escaping reality or was that, you know, kind of just hanging out with people and having a laugh, right? Now, another thing that fascinates me is uh, there are so many stereotypes about gamers, and Dungeon Party plays with these. In a couple cases, there are people who might look very recognizable as a certain archetype. It's always a little more complicated in this story, Um, but it's something the players actually talk about. They often resent the stereotyping that's done, but they sometimes do it themselves. But something that you do see in Dungeon Party and you see in the real world is that some of the people who play these games are actually quite successful. Um, they're not people who you know, uh, need some place in their life that they feel you know, something good is happening. Their lives may be great. And, in fact, there's a whole generation of celebrities like Stephen Colbert and so many others who loved D&D, and some of them have made it a part of their life now. So people come to the games for all kinds of reasons. And again, sometimes it's more about the people around the table than what's happening in the fantasy. I uh, you mentioned gaming conventions. I went to uh, Gen Con um, mm. in nineteen eighty six. Wow! Played it in a D and D tournament there. Um, we didn't we didn't advance, but I was I was voted uh, I don't know uh, 
they they voted like the, the the top player, and then that top player got a chance, another chance to advance with another team, and, I, and that never happened for me. I thought but, you were going to say you got voted most likely to host a radio show. Yeah, well, that too. Um, uh, but I, I just I experienced that gaming culture and and that gaming convention culture, and uh, just just again in full disclosure, I I went on with that memory and. Uh, about 15 years ago, I started a, it was actually a horror convention, but they're very, very similar. It's the same mm-hmm. kind of passion and same kind of people and same kind of environment. And there's a lot of gaming going on. Um, but I started my own horror convention called Scaricon. I've been doing that for about 15 years. And, and Gen Con was the genesis of that for me. Yeah. And I, I think you could, you could speak to this. I'd like to hear your experience. What I've seen with these communities is, a growing diversity, a treme- uh, again, there's, there's stereotypes about who is in fandom and who would go to this, but I see people from all kinds of walks of life. If there is something that's maybe overrepresented, it may be people who feel that maybe they get left out of some things in society, and this is a place yeah. where they can go, and they get to feel like they're in the mainstream in their community. Right. Um, and, and I see a lot of mutual support. I see people not just talking about whether it's, you know, fantasy games or horror, but talking about their lives, talking about maybe hard things in their lives. And, you know, going to get a drink with someone and having a laugh and, and winding up finding a soulmate. Uh, is that something you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. And I find that these these communities, whether it's horror, gaming, or, or sci-fi, or, or, you know, the, the combination of all of them, there's another convention called Convergence in Minneapolis that I've gone to a bunch of times. It seems to be a uh, a, a connection of all these different communities, but these are the most welcoming and non-judgmental communities that I think anybody could be uh, uh, find if they're looking for a community to belong to. They really are all welcoming and encompassing, and I, I find that very refreshing. I I agree. And when I started to write a Dungeon Party, I, that was part of what I had in mind was celebrating that. What I what I didn't realize is that you know it's funny when you write a story. Sometimes the characters have a mind of their own, and you as the author say, no, 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 I've got a plan. Everything's, you know, and, and the character says, yeah, I know, I, your plan can go chase itself, because i got something else in my mind. And, and so in Dungeon Party, I, I wound up having a character who, who has been a part of all that and winds up taking a very different perspective on it, and you get to sort of see that evolve over the course of the book. Um, and as more than one person has pointed out, it's sometimes it's an excuse for me to really, really uh, critique other games that I don't, you know, I think have problems and and don't work. And this character is picking up on those so quickly, but he even becomes, um, you know, kind of starts to see the whole gaming world differently. And I, I'm not saying I agree with him, um, but you know. He had a mind of his own, and uh, as the story went on, I, I came to see how well that could work. Because sometimes to appreciate something, it, you know, it, it's kind of boring just to have everybody say, aren't we all just a wonderful bunch? Yeah. It, it can be more fun to have somebody come in and say, no, you, y'all are idiots, and, um, and kind of sort it out. Uh, and that's part of what happens in Dungeon Party is the reader gets to decide which side they're on. Another one of the debates in the book that uh, is emerging is... Um, between these tabletop games and video games. And sometimes people are really committed to one or the other and just have no patience uh, for, you know, people who consider the other kind of gaming the true, you know, the better game. And, um, again, I, I let those debates play out among the characters. I try not to, 
have my views uh, be dominant, uh, but that does happen in the gaming community. People have really strong opinions about all these different kinds of games, um, and it's fun to see them argue about that uh, live as the action is unfolding. One of the things that uh, American culture or pop culture has uh, turned on recently is this fascination with true crime, and I bring that up because I uh, watch a program frequently i've got it scheduled to record on my dvr and i've always got 25 episodes there and i you know whenever i get a chance i'm watching forensic files which examines you know old cases generally and talks about how forensics solved a murder or whatever it happens to be i was watching one the other night in which a a boy i don't know he was probably 20 years old uh sadly murdered a mother and his and her mm. baby and her infant mm. and uh during this this investigation they in, in, in presented in forensic files, they kept talking about how this boy was a player of Dungeons and Dragons, oh which, boy. which uh, you know, talks. You know, they went they went through all the quote unquote negatives, these stereotypical negatives that are brought up when right. someone who doesn't understand what these games are about uh, looks at these games from the outside in. Is there anything to any of that? I don't believe there is. But what's your opinion on all that? Uh, no, there's nothing to it. I, I will say that fantasy role-playing games are understudied, and I'm excited to meet people and, and talk to people who play these games. Uh, anyone who's listening to this who gets excited about Dungeon Party, it's easy to find online in all your various bookstores and so on. But it's also pretty easy to find me, and, and if you have a gaming group and you want to uh, have essentially a book club night, I'd be happy to do that and, and talk about your experience playing these games and how they've changed you. I think reading Dungeon Party is meant to kind of get you to think about your own life and your own experience with games. What I'm kind of getting to here is that for every person who's played a game, there's kind of a different experience. And I think it's certainly the case that people who have played, uh, say, violent video games or Dungeons & Dragons have gone on to do terrible things, and they've gone on to do wonderful things, and they've gone on to do things they don't think are terribly important and they wouldn't like to talk about. Uh, you know, there's so many different lives out there and they happen to intersect with all kinds of different entertainments. I'm sure people who watch forensic files uh, can be found on the, the crime blotter in the local paper. But it, the watching the show didn't cause the behavior. Really? And the research on uh, video games has come to a pretty pretty strong conclusion that whatever effect you thought there might have been on, in particular, uh, aggression, if it's there, it's pretty small and it's really inconsistent. And even talking about video games itself is confusing because there's so many different ones out there. So remember when earlier we talked about D&D, &D, uh, you can even play Dungeons & Dragons in so many different ways. So it doesn't tell us much. But I, I will maybe surprise you, J.V., by saying, you know, the satanic panic of the 80s, I, I think there was something there, which mm -hmm. is if, if you are trying to raise your children in a very conservative religious family and you want them to have a particular view of, of theology, certain things are true and everything else is rubbish, heresy, in fact, it would probably give you pause to discover that your kid had, you know, come home and said, hey, you know what, 
I'm a priest now, and I worship this sort of lizard god? Well, I guess it's a demigod, technically. I mean, there's hundreds of gods, and I've only just started to open the book that has all of them in it. Uh, you know, in the monster manual is what I was going to hope you would get me for my birthday, because there's so many different kinds of demons in there. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm up against, and my friend has an imp who's super helpful, and, you know, he casts spells, and they're not death spells, it's just an imp. Maybe later, when he's stronger, he could do that, but, you know, and you're just horrified. You're like, what on earth is going on? And, and all of that is real, right? That's not media sensationalism. That's actually what the kid's learning. So, you know, I, I think what, what happened was um, that the, the sort of society at large, uh, when that's where the panic comes in, um, and just said, oh, my gosh, what does all this mean? Are, you know, are these people learning to cast spells? And, and then when you mix in live-action role-playing, it's like, oh, my God, they're running around. They're making their own swords. Well, obviously, there's a ton of ignorance there, but there's no getting around the fact that games like D&D uh, basically portray a world that has hundreds of gods and all sorts of devils, and um, you can play an evil character. That's not a problem, right? So, so let's be honest about that, but then let's return to the question of, okay, now what does that do to a person? Well, actually, I think it broadens their mind, and they learn a lot about ancient uh, history. They learn a lot about culture and religion. Um, and as, as we see with many Dungeons & Dragons games, they also potentially learn the skills of an, uh, of an accountant, which will, you know, give them a decent salary. Yeah, I've got the 20-sided die, and the, I can remember all the different ones, the 12-sided, I think, and uh, the, the, all these die. I still have them all sitting over here on my shelf, which is kind of funny. I haven't used them in years. Um, you, you know what? I'll, I'll bet you have a pretty refined sense of probability. That 20-sided die tells you exactly what a 5% chance is, That's right. It? That's right. Yes. Right? When somebody says something like a vaccine is 90% effective, you can think to yourself, well, that's a 10-sided die, friend. <laughs> I've seen a lot of 10s in my day, so I'd like a higher percentage, please. Um, you know, I don't think that playing Dungeons & Dragons or any of these games uh, have any more chance of making someone do something rather e evil than playing the game Operation has and making someone going out and perform an unsanctioned surgery on somebody. I just don't. I just don't buy it. I mean, oh I think... no, no, JV. The, the game operation has been shown to actually cause all sorts of. <laughs> oh, I guess I'm making that part up. But you know what? Wouldn't it be hilarious if it did? Okay. <laughs> as long as we all had the red nose that lit up when you, you did something wrong, you know that would be. John, where's the book available? I know you mentioned it earlier, but where can people find it? You can find it anywhere. I, I encourage people to uh, uh, darken the doorstep of their uh, local independent store because every local business needs some help. But if uh, if you'd rather go online, you can get an Amazon Audible. Actually, uh, Victor Bavine, uh, the voice of a lot of novels by R.A. Salvatore, set in the Forgotten Realms in the D&D world. Um, Victor's the voice of Dungeon Party. He did an amazing job. Uh, and uh, so, again, you can get it in every format you can imagine through any bookstore you want. Um, and I'm sorry we, we uh, lost the call there for a second. It turns out uh, my neighbor uh, has cursed uh, the building, and uh, <laughs> they cast a disconnection spell. I think they were targeting someone else because we get on pretty well, but um, maybe it affected the whole phone system. So, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, well, you're going to need a priest to cast a remove curse spell, um, have them do that right away, and then we shouldn't have this problem moving forward. 
Well, it turns out, I think it's maybe a scam, because they do sell phones that are well-connected. So I just went down there, got a new one, and here I am. Um, you were talking about Tom Hanks, and you mentioned something that we kind of hadn't defined, live-action role-playing. I mean, up until this point, we've been talking about games you basically play on a tabletop or on some kind of computer or console. But live-action role-playing is a little different. What, what is it? Yeah, I mean, it's going out there and playing the story. And uh, some of these are incredibly sophisticated uh, people will, you know, think of it, they're really writing kind of screenplays for whole uh, adventures and quests that could go on for, for quite a while. Um, and, uh, you know, instead of casting a spell by saying to the game director, uh, I'm going to cast my sleep spell now and I'll roll my, you know, eight-sided dice or what have you, um, four-sided technically, um, uh, in live-action role-playing, you might instead actually be tossing a bag of rice and uh, depending on where it lands, uh, that's who's going to be affected by the spell. Um, there's all sorts of ways you can simulate the sort of fantastic in these interactions. But again, it really just comes down to people hanging out and having a great time. And in that case, you get to dress up in costume. You maybe get to craft your armor um, and, you know, really get into it. It, it, gets, it certainly has a, a cosplay element, right, a costuming kind of aspect. So, it, it gives you more ways to express yourself than just tabletop gaming. It's not for everyone, uh, but it's incredibly popular. And again, it, I think we've seen it rise in parallel with the rise of digital games and tabletop games. I um, one, one, I mentioned a convention I've gone to in Minneapolis called Convergence. One of the things they do there is they actually perform these live-action role-playing games on a stage of sorts. They act, and people can watch. It's almost theater. Well, that, that sounds literally like theater. Um, I, would, I would say a live-action role-playing game uh, could be that, but it could also be much more open-ended. I mean, sometimes they're held in like a national forest. And so, you know, it's one thing to see something up on a stage. It's another thing to be walking through the forest and being kind of scared out of your mind, thinking, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, I wish there were ten of us instead of two of us, because there's bad things in this forest. You know, that's what everybody told us before we left the tavern. Um, and, of course, nothing actually bad is going to happen to you, but your character that you're playing might indeed uh, have some, uh, some evil befall him or her. You know, one of the things that I find interesting, too, is that this, this discussion is bringing a couple of my worlds together, my love of gaming, but also conversations that we have on this program virtually every night about paranormal topics. You know, some of these creatures and some of these things that we've talked about in terms of uh, monsters and D&D and, and, and other components of these games are actually phenomena that we chat about on this program. Do you see the connection between the paranormal community and the gaming community? Well, absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the most successful fantasy role-playing games is based on the Lovecraft stories that you know, some people are discovering on HBO for the first time. Uh, but there have obviously been a, a ton of fans of that work for a long time. And Call of Cthulhu, the, uh, the role-playing game, uh, has a very different vibe from D&D. Uh, you know, you're much more likely to be, um, as a campaign a friend hosted not long ago, we were archaeology students in the, the northeastern U.S. who had sort of a, a field trip we had to do, and uh, lo and behold, we ran into some foul sort of cultists and um, some pretty scary-looking creatures. In, in that game, you're less likely to get beheaded by a vorpal sword, and you're more likely to lose your mind because you see some abomination that shouldn't exist in nature, uh, and literally your character goes insane. Um, so, uh, in fact, uh, that, that does appear briefly in Dungeon Party when one of, the, 
one of the characters is exploring some different games. He runs into this kind of game. So, you know, if you can imagine it, if there's anything about the paranormal world you can think up, whether it's, you know, kind of a Victorian haunting or it's more of a Lovecraftian horror uh, story, trust me, there's a fantasy role-playing game for it, and you can play it. Right? I, 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 you know, it sounds funny, but I'm sure there are statistics for Bigfoot. Right? What would it take to bring him down, and <laughs> what happens if the dude gives you a punch? It's not good. I can, I can bet that. Well, as you develop the characters for Dungeon Party, um, and, and you, you, the social interaction was one thing we were talking about, but is there, any, uh, is there a darker side to any of these characters? Is there anything that comes out that is, that is uh, manifested because they're playing the game? I think so. I think so. I'll, I'll, I'll confess something, which is I already told you that when, when I started to write Dungeon Party, in some ways my mind changed about the story as mm-hmm. it got underway. And the biggest change was uh, my original idea was more satirical. I thought it would be funny if the characters in the fantasy world started to become more self-aware. And, you know, what is this quest? Well, you know, why do we care about gemstones anyway? Um, uh, that seemed funny, and there's, there's still some laughs in there. Um, but Really, what became more compelling was the players playing the game. And I thought, you know, this is really more a literary work that has a strong fantasy element, and those works are about character arcs. And so what I realized is is the event that brings together the three main characters, uh, Carlos, Randall, and Alan, uh, the book starts, I mean, it's right at the start of the book, you are, you are told, an accident is coming. At the very first sentence tells you you're about to witness an accident, and that has a powerful role in, in the lives of these three guys. Um, well, Dungeons and Dragons, or, or Dungeon Lords, in the case of this book, that's the, the game in Dungeon Party, um, it can be a way of processing that trauma. And how you process it depends on who you are and your life experiences. Uh, Carlos, Allen, and Randall all have very different family histories, and they experience this trauma very differently. And so, yeah, some people, the game is therapeutic and helps them process and resolve things in different ways. But for some, that's not the experience. And it it may harden parts of their personality. And again, I don't want to say too much about the story, but I will say this is something people have seen with fantasy gaming, is that sometimes the way you choose to play the game draws out a part of yourself that maybe is, is sort of sweet and special. Uh, and for other people, it, it can reinforce the parts of you that are more unpleasant, maybe more aggressive. So that is a way in which you wind up expressing yourself through the game. You know, cause and effect is a little complicated. Um, but you can see as a fellow player how your friends are evolving. And sometimes you see it in the game almost before you see it in the person, right? You might have some complaints about their character, and, you know, that's not what your character would do. Your character's a paladin. You know, he's supposed to be, be defending virtue, and why would you just, you know, murder those villagers? Um, that's not right. That's, that's violating the kind of rules of our story. And you start to discover that it's, the paladin's not the problem. It's the guy playing the paladin who's becoming kind of a jerk. <laughs> so it's funny how you not only see people processing their lives through the game, but sometimes you start to discover who people are through how they play the game. In fact, I, when I was a campaign manager, this is, we started talking about politics briefly. Right. I, I made a pledge to myself after a while that I would never work for another candidate without playing a board game first. 
because I learn more about a person's character in one hour playing a board game than I do in all the you know endless conversations we might have because I see how they how they are in terms of do they pay attention do right. they read the rules do they follow the rules are they more interested in winning or playing the game well and so on the, again playing a good game with people tells you a lot about them uh, when you were developing the characters for Dungeon Party uh, how much of their personal background, uh, their professions, their education, maybe their family life. How much of that came into play uh, in their character in the game? Well, for some more than others, um, uh, Carlos is my favorite in this regard. So growing up in San Diego, I I had a little bit of an uh, unusual life. My dad was a geologist, and he studied Baja California, the geology of of, uh, a part of Mexico. And so we were traveling there a lot, and I, I was exposed to Mexican-American culture and, and even Mayan and Aztec culture um, and the Spanish language. And uh, it's a part of my family history. I'm, I'm, as, I'm as white as they get. Uh, but, again, that good fortune of then getting to later get to travel around Central America, and now I get to go to South America because of uh, study juries, and they are doing interesting things with juries down there. But the point is that it, it's let me... Um, create a character that is very much influenced by his, his heritage. And so one of the ways that Carlos expresses that, and he's, he's the character Carlos has lost some patience with the game. This happens. People sometimes feel like they're outgrowing the game. And he kind of makes a deal that, well, okay, his character Santana, yeah, named for Carlos Santana, um, <laughs> He gets to play the game he wants to, and that means that he's a sorcerer, he casts spells, but he casts his spells in Spanish. And um, so deal with it, right? And, and, you know, he gets to add all of these sort of cultural flares uh, that you would never see in the Tolkien world because he's bored with the Tolkien world. He wants a world that's a little bit Mayan. Um, and I think it adds a lot of spice to the game. It makes things kind of interesting. It, not everybody is always sure what he's saying sometimes when he says a, a turn of phrase, but you know what? The people around the table tend to, tend to pick it up. They learn a bit of Spanish. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's a character, what, really one of my favorite characters is uh, Maya, who names her character Angelou, uh, Maya Angelou. Um, and she's just graduated from Evergreen College and now has the chance to, and she's debating whether to go get a Ph.D. in English at Yale University. And she is very postmodern, and she reads the game like a text and thinks about, you know, how a culture is expressing itself in these stories. And her character is a barbarian, right? Just this, this fierce, clan-loyal barbarian. And, yeah, that's not who she is, but it lets her express a part of herself or at least, you know, kind of have fun with something that she doesn't get to be in real life. So, and again, it's complicated. Um, how you play the character um, maybe says something about what you feel like you need, and Carlos and Maya need kind of different things, so they have different characters. John, having this conversation with you tonight and thinking about all this and, and remembering how much fun I had playing some of these games, um, is it is it finally happened here? And this might be a bit of a, a, a paradoxical statement, but is it cool to be a nerd again? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's safe to say it is. <laughs> and, and again, a, a show like Stranger Things uh, probably really helped D&D because it was in its moment, you know, kind of the coolest thing on TV. Right. Um, but really, any any popular media that celebrates nerd culture usually has a D and D element to it. Um, and you know, it's 
it's it's true that those that particular skill set uh, has been incredibly useful in a digital age. So there has been kind of an ascent of the nerd, but it, it's not just because you know Bill Gates made a lot of money being a nerd. It, uh, t- People, again, people in popular media who played D and D. I mean, actors and writers. Uh, these people are, are maybe nerds, but they're they're rock stars. Um, and so, you know, it's what I like to say is that D and D isn't isn't like a refuge for nerds. It, it can be, and it, it was for me in some ways. Um, it's also a training ground in storytelling. And those are powerful skills. In fact, you know, I, I told you at the start of the show, I mean, I'm a professor at Penn State, and one of the courses I teach is on group communication. And when they do surveys of businesses, hey, what do you need people to have? Like, what are we supposed to be, you know, teaching people in college besides being, you know, good people and good citizens? Um, and public speaking is often at the top of that list. I need people who can actually speak. And writing is high on the list. I need people who can, who can write. Believe it or not, uh, group behavior is right up there, too. They want people who can lead discussions and who are effective working in teams. And, you know, if I apply to a company, I might not think to put on my resume the fact that I've run a gaming group for 10 years with, you know, 62 different players over the course of that time. And, you know, but I'd, I'd, I'd say consider putting it there because you're showing an incredible capacity for organization and leadership, um, social networking and so on. And you really do see that, that these games um, uh, have, have made some of the successful people in our society who they are in all kinds of complex ways. John, is Dungeon Party a, a book for gamers, for people who want to understand what gamers are about, or is it for everybody? It sounds like it's more for everybody. It is for everybody. I mean, I, I've thought gamers are kind of a built-in audience because I think we in the gaming community don't have a lot of great fiction that takes our lives seriously. There, there's some famous stories. I mean, Ready Player One is a great example of a story that's about gaming and how the game is this incredible adventure. And I want people to come to Dungeon Party expecting something a little different, much more of kind of a literary work that has, again, a strong fantasy element to it in this fantasy world that is a, a part of the story. Uh, but it's really about the characters. It's really about the people and, and how they experience games and how they experience each other. And one of the worries I had was um, how will sort of the greats of games like Dungeons & Dragons respond to this? Will this feel authentic to them? And I was so fortunate. Ed Greenwood, who I, I alluded to before, the creator of The Forgotten Realms, was one of the first people to read and endorse the book. And his take on it was, that, oh my God, I wish this book had come out in the 80s because <laughs> it's been so hard to explain to people who don't play these games what it's all about, why we're so passionate about it, why these games matter. And so he's, you know, obviously front and center on the back of the book. Um, and uh, his point is, is, I think, a good one, that it's sure, it's a great book for gamers, and it will help you reflect on your experience in games, and you'll, you'll see yourself in there. Uh, one way or another, um, but it's it's also it's a great gift to give someone um, who maybe you love, but they don't love that you love games. Um, <laughs> give them Dungeon Party and let them let them see what it's all about uh, in a in a narrative that they might find more accessible. And so I had to write about gaming in a way that made sense to people who don't play games. And uh, I think I've done that. I think I've made it so that you you really do learn how to play the game in the course of the book. Um, I don't assume a level of knowledge at the outset. Um, so it's really for gamers and non-gamers alike, but 
anyone who's interested in games, I think, will really enjoy it. It's not very hard to hear and uh, understand your passion and enthusiasm <laughs> for these games and gaming in general. What do you play now? Do you, do you still play D&D? Well, I didn't for a long time, and at the time I was uh, writing Dungeon Party, I, I actually had to go out and buy a bunch of books uh, to re-familiarize myself with some of the mechanics of different uh, fantasy role-playing games, because the book has a game called Dungeon Lords in it, which isn't a real game. Um, but I still wanted some, some verisimilitude, if we can use a fancy word. Um, but as it happens, uh, a friend here in town um, started up a D&D campaign, and like so many D&D campaigns, it, it collapsed. Uh, it's hard uh, running these games. It's incredibly demanding of your time, and it just didn't work out. But then I fell into another one, and part of what was so great about uh, that second one is it's a Zoom campaign, because I joined during the pandemic, and I've been so surprised at how well that works. It's really quite compelling. We, in fact, played just uh, the other night on, on Sunday evening, and my character, I, I'm playing actually Santana, one of, the, one of the fictional characters in Dungeon Party. I play as a, a sorcerer in this campaign, and he has a little owl in, in the D&D uh, campaign, and it's not clear whether he has that little owl anymore. Um, he was in a pinch. My sorcerer, it looked like, was, was going to die. And the owl just came tearing out of the sky and defended my, my character, Santana. Uh, but it cost his life. Oh. And um, Santana moped about for the rest of the evening, but we had an encounter with some crazy kind of Ifriti, this giant, sort of fire giant, who may have restored uh, my owl to, to life. I, I actually... I. I know I felt something solid on my shoulder and saw my owl sitting there, but then I told him to just go into my little backpack and burrow and eat some mice because I don't really want to know if now I've got my little zombie owl. <laughs> um, but, but I'll tell you what, I mean, we were, we were choked up when the sure. scene happened. Yeah. It, was, it, was just a, it wasn't even my character. It was my character's owl. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a bloody battle, and one of the other characters it just died. Mm. outright. Mm -hmm. And he was okay with it. He was like, you know what? This is how my guy would go down. This is, he was defending someone who really didn't deserve to be defended, but that's, that's how things are in my world. So um, it was really emotional. And again, we were in different places, all connected just by a vi via video. But we took a break after that battle because we were emotionally spent. So it works. The, uh, the book actually may be a good primer for people who might be interested in exploring these games, but um, with that in mind, how else would you recommend someone who might have heard this conversation and says, hmm, I might want to try that. How do I get started? Well, there's a couple different things. One is uh, there is, like you said, a really welcoming community of people who play these games. So you can go online and very quickly find people who are playing and who would love to have another player. Um, and... God bless the search engines, right? It's easy to find that. It really is. Um, but there's another approach, which is what I think is, is more traditional and actually is my recommendation, is find one person who's interested in exploring this with you, uh, whatever game kind of it is. And, um, and now the two of you can probably just kind of get going, and you can draw people in from there. Um, again, the social aspect of these games, I think, is, is the real selling point. So that's why I think it, starts, it makes sense to kind of start with a friend. Um, and, uh, again, you'll, you'll have no trouble building out from there. 
there's gaming communities, I should say, in every town. So even if it's a little intimidating to think about playing a game with people, you know, all across the world, if you live in, you know, Raleigh, Durham or something, you will find online. It's easy enough to find the community. And if, you know, Google lets you down, just start looking for a local game store. Because believe it or not, that's, yeah. that's still something they do. They, they serve as network hubs for gamers, and they'll get you in touch with someone. Um, and again, I, I think you might be surprised at how welcoming they are. They love people to love the things they love. Is that so confusing, right? Yeah, they absolutely so, yeah, do. You'll yeah. find your way in pretty quickly. Yeah, and those gaming stores will also actually host game night. You know, like a, maybe they do D&D on a Wednesday night or something. You can go and watch and kind of dip your toe into it and, and start that way as well. Um, I've seen plenty of that, too. John, you've told us twice already, but where can people find Dungeon Party? <laughs> well, you can find it. Anywhere books are sold, uh, I always recommend visiting local businesses, your local bookstore, and so on. But you can, of course, go to Audible. There's an audiobook version. Uh, Amazon.com uh, will have your digital version, your print version, and so on. And, uh, uh, I, again, if you love the book and enjoy it, uh, please leave a review wherever you did happen to read it. And uh, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to talk to people, and I'm really curious to hear about other people's experience of gaming and Again, that's part of really why I wrote Dungeon Party, is to help people who don't play games understand what they're all about, but also for us gamers to have a chance to kind of read about a story about us and reflect on maybe what part of that resonates with our own life, or maybe we've found a journey that's really quite different. Uh, either way, I think it's good to reflect on uh, how important games have been in our lives, and that's really what Dungeon Party is about. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on tonight and talking about this. It was a real personal treat for me, and I know our audience enjoyed it as well. And uh, next time, I'm sure you've got something else in the works, so keep in touch. We'll, we'll love to have you come back. I will, JV. Once again, it's a great experience. You're a great interviewer, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Not always predictable, <laughs> uh, but isn't that the way we want it to be? Absolutely. Thanks again, John. Again, it's John Gassel. Um, oh, and by the way, if you want to visit John's website, that's very easy to find as well. It's his, it's his name. It's uh, johngastil.com. Gastil spelled G-A-S-T-I-L. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.